You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. This week on Adventures in Finance, all roads lead to Beijing as we look at China's generation-defining one belt one road policy, an endeavor that, if successful, will interweave the economic destinies of over half of the global population across 65 countries. At a projected cost of over four trillion dollars, equivalent to launching 27 international space stations, building 10 U.S. interstate highway systems, or digging 182 channel tunnels connecting the U.K. to continental Europe, no matter how you slice it, China is primed to head up the largest infrastructure investment project our world has ever seen. One whose aim is to expand China's capabilities as a growing regional and global superpower, and could mean potential investing opportunities. For decades to come, I haven't seen a macro setup like this since we started exploring mainly the Qatari infrastructure boom in the 2010 timeframe, and we are absolutely—we're not even in inning one here. We're 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 before the game has even started.、Uh, it will basically facilitate China、uh, expanding towards Europe in that direction.、Uh, it involves lots of infrastructure. It will create growth in the Asian、uh, sphere over the next probably 30 years, and this is a serious enterprise. This week on Adventures in Finance, one belt, one road. Also in this week's episode, in our long short segment, Aaron and I highlight the good and the not so good stories of the week. All right, so my short for the week is I'm shorting the Olympics, Grant. And last Wednesday, Budapest、uh, decided to withdraw its bid for the 2024 Summer Olympics. Well, for me this week, I, I'm long centenarians because I saw a, a chart from the U.S. Census Bureau, and yeah, you know, currently there's about 75,000 of them. But the way the curve is going, by the time we get to 2055, there are going to be half a million people over the age of 100 in the U.S. And finally, we have our things I got wrong segment, where we speak with market experts about an investing mistake they made. And ask them to share a pearl of wisdom with the benefit of 2020 hindsight. This week, we're delighted to have one of our good friends, Dr. Ben Hunt, the author of the fantastic Epsilon Theory Letter and chief investment strategist at Salient Partners. And it, it'll be a story I think that'll be familiar to a lot of your listeners because it's the story of Europe and European markets in the summer of 2012, where I had my teeth kicked in by Mario Draghi. I'm Grant Williams. And I'm Aaron Chan, and this is Adventures in Finance. So today is March second, two thousand seventeen, and welcome to episode five of Adventures in Finance. So we're coming to you from the partially cloudy Cayman Islands, and by my side is our gallant producer James Gibb. James, I love how you refer to me as gallant. What what exactly is gallant about me? Well, the trials and tribulations you go through every week to make sure that we produce this podcast is. Is incredible. It's epic. So、oh. I want to recognize you for that. Well, thank you, Aaron. Well, you know what else is epic? What? One belt, one road. Our feature this week, and one man of many roads: planes, trains, cars, and is my co-host and founder of Real Vision, Grant Williams. And Grant, where in the world are you? Well,、uh, this is、uh, this is a big week for me because、uh, I'm home sleeping in my own bed in Singapore. So、uh, really, yeah, this is、uh, this is all too rare an occurrence. Weren't you there last week as well? 
yeah, no, how about that? I'm going to be here for a month. Go figure. All right, at least we know where you are now. We can pin you down when we need you. And we do need Grant. Um, and there is that pesky 13-hour time difference. We were supposed to record early this morning at 4 a.m. our time, but uh, Grant, you decided to go for 10 a.m. our time, so thanks for that. You are welcome, guys. Well, first up is our long short segment where Grant and I pick out the best and worst stories that we've come across over the week. So, Grant, why don't I start first? I am long cybersecurity because for the first time in history, approximately half of internet traffic was uh, is now encrypted with the HTTPS protocol. And it may not it may seem kind of technical and it's like, well, you know, what does that actually mean? Well, what that means is that uh, more and more of the flow of traffic uh, on the internet is encrypted and is protected. And I think this uh, this underlies a, sort of a larger trend in terms of demand for cybersecurity services. Um, so I read about this and, you know, it's corroborated by Google data. It's corroborated by Mozilla data as well. And um, if you, I think if you look at the past couple of years, demand for cybersecurity services is set to double. So for this week, I am long cybersecurity. Yeah, it's funny. You mentioned that. I got a warning today that uh, this Cloudflare hack has exposed every user of Fitbit and Uber. Now that really? is a big, yeah, that's a big, big cross section of population who have had their details. Do you do you wear Fitbit as a, as a plain text file? So I, I do not. I wear uh, something else that tells me how unfit I am, but I uh, I don't wear a Fitbit anymore. Oh well. But I do use Uber. Wait, so Uber was expo- exposed in this hack? Yeah, and apparently every every user of Uber and Fitbit. Uh, user of, users of the apps have had their their personal data put out in the world as a plain text file. So if you've got uh, if you use either of those, change your passwords right away. Interesting. I'm I'm almost curious to go and see if I can find myself and to to map out if see if there's any pattern to my Uber usage while I was in New York. But I guess I'm also scared of what I may find. <laughs> so Grant, what was your long for the week? Well, for me this week, I, I'm long uh, centenarians. Uh, which is uh, someone who is over 100 years old. Because I saw a, a chart from the U.S. Census Bureau, uh, which looks at the number of uh, people over 100 there are in the United States. And uh, you're currently, uh, there's about 75,000 of them. Um, wow. Yeah, seven, I think it's 72,000, but yeah, which is extraordinary. But the way uh, the curve is going at the current rate, uh, by the time we get to 2055, there are going to be half a million people um, over the age of 100 uh, in the US, which is you know, a six-fold increase from today. So you know, th- this is great in terms of longevity and all the people that uh, you know, we're, we're still waiting for the first people to live past 125, and they, they've already been born. Um, but the strain that that's going to put on the uh, welfare system takes me straight into my short of the week because the pension system in the United States is already um, under enormous pressure. Something is going to have to be done about the unfunded liabilities. Um, and as these people just continue to refuse to die off and get older and older and older, while it's great on a personal level, um, at some point the math is going to stop working. And uh, even though it doesn't work already, uh, it's going to stop working to a degree that something has to be done about it. And that's going to cause all kinds of problems. So, so I'm long people getting old, and I'm short people getting old. <laughs> yeah, I mean, Grant, you completely took the thought out of my head because that was, that was going to be the next thing I was going to ask you uh, after your long. I was like, what's going to happen to the pensions? What's going to happen to all the unfunded liabilities? Uh, I guess maybe one thing that we could count on is equities will just keep going up because at some point they're going to have to pay for, uh, pay for these liabilities with capital gains on, on stock. So maybe we can go long uh, equities there. 
That's not actually not well, a recommendation. Look, it's yeah, look, it's 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 a problem because uh, you know you've, you've got healthcare bills which are going up uh, leaps and bounds, food bills, electric bills, you know, everything. Um, when, when people retire, that they, they weren't planning on living uh, another sixty years, um, and certainly uh, pension plans are, aren't designed and equipped to pay for someone's life for another 60 years. So something is going to have to happen. Uh, and I suspect it's going to be something that's forced upon us. So um, yeah, my long and short all wrapped up into one story there. All right. So my short for the week is I'm shorting the Olympics, Grant. And last Wednesday, <laughs> Budapest uh, decided to withdraw its bid for the 2024 Summer Olympics, leaving just two cities, Los Angeles and Paris, competing to play host as the, you know, as for the Olympics in 2024. And I'm short this because, you know, being, being from Canada, Montreal hosted the Olympics, I think, in, in 1976, and it took them 30 years to pay off their de- uh, the, the debt that, you know, involved with building the infrastructure, building the stadiums. It was $1.3 billion, and it took them 30 years to pay off that debt. You look at Rio, which cost $20 billion, and now you're left with stadiums that are in disrepair. Uh, I think Rome, Rome's mayor, uh, Rome, when considering a bid for the Olympics, the mayor, Virginia Raggi, she scrapped the whole idea, scrapped the plans because she said, you know, all the games will bring is just debt. So this is a bit of a crisis for the, uh, the, the Olympics because you only have two, two cities uh, vying for, for that spot. But uh, given this situation, I am short the Olympics. Yeah, it's you know it's interesting, isn't it, that that, uh, that that this trend has started. It used to be something. It was just such a, it was such a badge of honor to win the Olympic Games, and and the money was never the object because it was just uh, we'll just sell some more bonds, we'll just uh, print some more money, we'll we'll find a way to finance it, and it'll work out in the end. But you're right; those stories are percolating through, and uh, people have got more sensible things to spend the money on. And um, I think that's uh, that's a real signpost for where the world is right now. And and this isn't to say that I am short. The spirit of the Olympics, because I, I still love what it represents and, and what it does in terms of bringing the best athletes, amateur athletes in the world together uh, to showcase their talents. But uh, it almost seems like over over the decades, that aspect has shielded so the nefarious and, and deleterious effects of, of the of the debt accumulation and, and the effects it has on those cities that, that are hosting it. And it's not just Rio. You can think about Beijing in 2008 when they had the Summer Olympics. There's now the infamous Bird's Nest Stadium that is sat pretty much empty for the nearly 10 years now. But China isn't done with infrastructure projects, as we will discuss in our upcoming feature on One Belt, One Road, which is, in my opinion, one of the most significant economic developments of the decade. Uh, but it's also something that I think is widely misunderstood and underappreciated in, in the West. Yeah, you know, look, I mean, this is something um, that, that I've been looking, spent a lot of time looking at recently. And, and someone who I spent some time talking to about this is is a real vision favorite, Pippa Malmgren. And Pippa's been all over this for, for well over a year now. And, and she's spoken about this at, on numerous occasions. And she was telling me that every time she gives a speech about this, she starts off by asking, uh, people in the audience for a show of hands as to who knows what OBOR stands for. And she says it's very rare she gets you know, a sprinkling of hands. Uh, and when you think about the sheer size and scale of this operation, uh, that's extraordinary. And either the Chinese government needs a, a better PR firm on the case or people need to do a lot more reading. And, and hopefully this week we can uh, we can help them understand the sheer magnitude of this project because it's, it's going to be front and center for, for the next decade. I think you're onto something with the Chinese hiring a better PR firm because they do come up with some strange names for uh, for their large scale projects. But large it is. I mean, it, the One Belt One Road, or also known as the Silk Road Economic Belt, it is a multi trillion dollar infrastructure development strategy and framework 
that was unveiled in 2013 by Xi Jinping, who is the president of the People's Republic of China and ostensibly the most powerful man in the country. Uh, it is a land and maritime-based infrastructure development framework connecting China and Eurasia. So not only does it cross, uh, go across land and over, you know, countless countries, it's also a maritime-based uh, project. So it's, it's, it is basically the Silk Road. Yeah, and, and you know, along that road, there are an awful lot of countries that will gain tremendous benefit from the kind of uh, investment that China are going to make. You know, there's a lot of, uh, lot of poor countries along there for, where this, uh, this influx of capital uh, and labor and jobs is going to be hugely beneficial. And, and let's face it, it's going to make China a lot of friends um, in that part of the world, which uh, I'm sure is a crucial part of their plan. That's absolutely right. But China's been laying, as, as they do, you know, Chinese, Chinese government, at least, are intergenerational thinkers. And they've been laying the groundwork for a number of years now. If you think back to the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank when it was established in 2013 with a $100 billion fund uh, meant for infrastructure loans. And you can also think about the Silk Road Fund, which was established in 2014, uh, $40 billion for direct investment in businesses. Um, but, you know, going back to what I said earlier about the project being overlooked and underreported, I mean, I, I just went on to Google Trends and, and compared uh, search interests between currency devaluation and One Belt, One, Ro- one Road uh, in the UK and the US, and the spread is, is minimal. So, and in some, in some instances, currency devaluation is even greater. Interest in currency devaluation is greater than One Belt, One Road, but I would argue that One Belt, One Road is going to have a much longer term impact. I mean, it's it's going to span decades. I, I don't think there's any doubt about that, but I think... Um the currency devaluation is is a one-off uh, phenomenon that people can get their heads around. They can sit and think about what does what does currency devaluation mean. It's a, it's a one-off event, and you can actually figure out and plot how the dominoes fall after that. One Belt One Road um, is is far broader uh, in scale, affects far more people, and it's it's a big exercise trying to figure out what this means, um, who it affects, how it affects them. Uh, and so I think I think people are focusing on the easy wins, which is uh, which is working out what happens in a currency devaluation. The OBOR is is going to last a lot longer and provide far greater opportunities over that period we're talking about. But it's it is a big thing to get your head around, as we're about to find out. And we're going to examine OBOR in greater detail. But I think before we start that, why don't uh, we provide some context? Yeah, you know, I, th- I think people need to to guard against falling into the trap of using uh, cliched understanding uh, about China and falling into that that easy place where you kind of think you have an understanding of what, what China's doing, you, you, you kind of know how they think and, and you put them in a box. As you said earlier, Aaron, they're, they're very strategic thinkers over there and they plan decades in advance, which is, which is unlike uh, anything we do in the West. And so I think it's important for people to do that because having local expertise uh, when discussing this stuff gives you that edge that you need to understand China during this phase. And recently, um, I spoke to a, a great friend of mine, Louis Garve, about this. Uh, he's based in Hong Kong, and he has a, a, an up-close uh, look at this and a really deep understanding of it. Being based in China was the right place to be for the past 15 years. It was the exciting place. Uh, the Chinese growth story was terrific. And in fact, if you look at the past 15 years, around half of global growth, pretty much directly or indirectly, was related to what was happening in China. Um, that's obviously now behind us. It's behind us for a number of reasons. The, uh, the simplest reason is that demographically, China is no longer growing. In fact, starting in 2016, the labor force starts to shrink. And so China's big ability to squeeze out productivity gains out of its labor force 
is slowly but surely disappearing. And with that comes a number of problems. Uh, and I think when most foreigners look at this, look at the state of China, the overcapacity, the bad debt problem, they think, oh, I've seen this movie before. Um, the answer is the government is going to print a bunch of money. They're going to expand budget deficits to keep growth at a certain level. Um, in essence, they're going to behave like our governments. Uh, now, what's interesting, to me at least, is that China doesn't seem to be going down this path. So there are many reasons why China won't act like other Western governments. I think Louis mentioned one of those reasons right there, demographics. But yeah. China also essentially, has a centrally planned economy. And as we mentioned earlier, they are intergenerational thinkers. That is their approach to economics and social planning. Yeah, you know, things like demographic trends, they're such big things to get your head around. And they involve, if you're going to invest along demographic lines, you're, you're taking a, a multi-decade view and people just aren't used to doing that. I mean, I, I saw this in Japan when I, when I moved there in the late 80s. We all knew that come 2014, the Japanese population would net be dying off. But, but did anybody invest accordingly? No, because it was, it was just too far out to sea. Uh, I think the One Belt, One Road is actually shorter. It, you know, it is a decade. There, there is a, a foreseeable horizon that people can invest along, and I, and I think people need to understand this. Uh, you know, and one of the biggest reasons uh, for what the Chinese are doing is a transformative lesson that they learned from 2008, which, uh, which Louis laid out for us in that interview. China in 2008 learned that being dependent on the U.S. dollar and on U.S. banks to finance its trade was a non-starter. And so that if China wanted to continue growing and to grow in a stable manner, because you have to remember that in China, stability is much more important than growth. Stability is uh, the number one concern. So if China wanted to remain stable, it actually couldn't depend on the U.S. dollar. If China wanted to be stable, it needed to move its trade from U.S. dollar to renminbi. And by and large, in the past five years, China has very successfully uh, started this transition. Five years ago, China was settling 0% of its trade in its own currency. Today, China settles 25% of its trade in its own currency. And now, all of a sudden, China's attempt to sort of spread its tentacles across Asia and you know, tell Asian countries, look, sh move your reserves from dollars to renminbi, move your trade from dollars to renminbi, is going into hyperdrive. Now, this idea of, of uh, the internationalization of the RMB is so important in so many ways, Aaron. I mean, this is, uh, it's happening. It's happening very, very fast. And again, it's another one of these things that's going under the radar. But this affects the oil markets. It affects the gold markets. It affects all the commodity markets. Um, and if you look at what the Chinese are doing with their treasury position, um, they've been aggressive sellers of U.S. Treasury for some time now. Uh, there is clearly a bigger game uh, afoot here. And I think Louis hit the nail on the head there. They, they are actively and, and surprisingly quickly uh, trying to bring the yuan into that international fold and to try and settle as much of their trade as they can in the domestic currency and bypass the U.S. dollar. And this is incredibly important for the world. What really hits home for me in that clip, especially, is, is the understanding that all of this is done for stability, uh, for social stability, really, so that there isn't, you know, if we're being frank, any kind of uprising that can challenge the Communist Party's power. But, I mean, given this context, One Belt, One Road really is the main thruster of China's economic rocket in the medium term. So One Belt, One Road meets a lot of different aims. And, and to help us uh, unpack that, we spoke with Michael Howe, who's the managing director of Cross Border Capital. 
And that is essentially uh, announced about a year and a half ago. It is a $4 trillion project. That means it's something like 30 times as large as martial aid in real terms after World War II. It will embrace 65 countries. It will cover a population of about uh, 3.8 billion people. So it's, it's enormous. That is a gargantuan undertaking that will span decades. I mean, the 30 times martial aid, I think martial aid was uh, $12, $12 billion uh, in, at that time. I think it's, it's adjusted for, for current day. It's about $120 billion, which is a tremendous amount of money. But oh my God, $4 trillion. 65 countries and 3.8 billion people grant well you, you know it's funny you, you talk about 100 billion dollars being a lot of money uh, not so long ago that was one month's uh, bond purchases by the federal reserve <laughs> give or take uh, but it but it, you know it's a point worth making we have entered this this new paradigm where we talk about four trillion dollars well you know that's the size of the federal reserve's balance sheet now it was 700 million uh, 700 billion not not that long ago um, but this is a real project that, as Michael quite rightly says, is going to touch 65 countries and half the people on the face of the planet, um, which is just reinforces this uh, this idea uh, that so few people knowing about this and really understanding it is extraordinary. I mean, it's the biggest infrastructure project we've seen in our entire lives, uh, and it's it's just about getting started. And it addresses numerous, I guess you could say, existential objectives that arose out of China's lessons in 2008. And the four things really to think about is number one and sort of paramount is internationalization of the yuan, the renminbi currency. Now, one of, the, one of China's stated aims, which we all ought to be conscious and maybe slightly fearful of, is that China wants to displace the American, uh, the American dollar as the mainspring of the world economy. Uh, that will, I would think, well, if it does that, there will be a lot more chaos than we're currently seeing and volatility in world financial markets. But that's what China intends to do. Uh, it will do that over the long term. Uh, it's on a short-term policy. To give you a parallel, the British pound was eclipsed by the American dollar in, I believe, 1955 in terms of international financial markets. But the US economy overtook Britain in 1870, 18, uh, 80 years earlier. So this is we're talking long-term and economic speak here. Your reserve currency regimes end. Like every one of them that has ever existed has ended. The only one that hasn't is the one that we've all lived our entire lives through, which is the US dollar. Um, and it will end. I mean, at some point, it will be surpassed by uh, you know, another reserve currency regime or, or quasi-gold standard or whatever it may be. Um, ultimately, its days are numbered, uh, just not yet. And, and so that's why it's such an important step for the Chinese to actively perhaps try and bring that day forward as they, as they seem to be trying to do. And in addition to the currency... Uh, China's state-owned enterprise is also trying to move out into the world and out into the competitive markets uh, because they need significant reform. The second thing it will do, which is a, uh, a key thing for China in the long term, it will help reform the state-owned enterprises. Now, these are large, lumbering corporations. Uh, in the West, we think they're sort of fiefdoms of corruption. Xi, um, the Chinese leader, wants to try and control these and to make them more efficient companies. Uh, they're being pushed out into the international arena, which will make them more efficient. One of the criticisms of Chinese state-owned enterprises in the uh, in the past is they've seriously underbid for contracts and consequently took taken big losses. And that will be, you know, this is part of the experience gathering if they go into the international arena and have to compete. Uh, and that's one of the things they want to do. Now, Grant, do you... <laughs> Do you think it's actually realistic that these state-owned enterprises will become more efficient uh, given a, a massive project that is funded by their own government? 
uh, in a word, no. Um, look, I mean, I, the problem with with um, projects of this size is there is an awful lot of money sloshing around, and when that happens um, in massive infrastructure projects, that money tends to go missing in enormous amounts. China's SOEs are not about to reform because of OBRI. If, if anything, I fear that, uh, as I said, the amount of money sloshing around actually might make them, for the short term, even more efficient, uh, inefficient. Um, and uh, and cause some real problems, but we're not going to know until this gets this gets going. When there are four trillion dollars sloshing around, and that's the estimate. Again, this will come in over. Um, some of that is going to lie in a lot of people's pockets, and the first guys in the trough, I suspect, are going to be the SOEs. So, with a project like One Belt One Road headed towards the west, I think it's also important that we look east. Uh, a project of this scale just cannot ignore trade implications with China's most important trading partner, and that would be the United States. Uh, you've got another factor, which is basically looking at trade relationships, uh, particularly with the US. China takes the US very, very seriously. I think one can almost talk about a G2 in the world between China and the US. That's how they want to see things. And China will not want to disturb existing trade relationships and probably geopolitical relationships too. Yeah. Well, you know, look, <laughs> China may not want to disturb those relationships, but uh they are they are bi-directional and there's a guy on the other side of those relationships who seems intent on disrupting just about everything so you know the the chinese old proverb about may you live in interesting times they have certainly uh walked into that with the election of donald trump so we we don't know i mean they they certainly don't want to rock the boat they're trying to pull off something um extraordinarily complex here uh, so, of course, they want to keep uh, things as stable as they can. But I suspect, ultimately, that decision is not going to be theirs to make. Yeah, Grant, that's such a crucial point about being bidir- a bidirectional relationship, because uh, the first name that actually comes to mind for me is Peter Navarro, right. who is an advisor to Trump. And if you look at uh, the body of Peter Navarro's work uh, and some of the books he's published recently, <laughs> some of the titles include The Coming China Wars, Crouching Tiger, uh, death by China. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, it it, uh, it belies a, a certain stance that they were taking towards uh, the giant in the east. No, it's it's very true, and uh, and I think that um, it, it's not just Navarro. You've got Lighthizer in trade as well. You've got two clearly highly antagonistic people who've been put in the front line with China, and whether that's just Donald Trump being Donald Trump and trying to make a point and trying to stake out his turf or not, it's possible. Um, but I think both of them have made no secret of the fact that they are not great, uh, great sinophiles. So it remains to be seen what happens. But uh, as I said, I think everyone needs to be aware that uh, it may not go well. Well, and last but certainly not least, One Belt, One Road's humongous draw on natural resources will essentially lay the foundation for China's future access to and control of natural resources. The fourth aspect of the thing is or One Belt, One Road is resources. China needs to control resources. And I think one of the things to bear in mind is that something like 40% of China's primary energy supply is coal, dirty energy. They will need to change that. So I think what you're looking at from a medium-term standpoint is the ability of China to grow down this road. It will provide the money. It will create what economists call seigniorage, which is the ability to use its currency to purchase resources globally. Uh, This is how it makes the yuan the international currency that it will ultimately become. Uh, It will basically facilitate China uh, expanding towards Europe in that direction. Uh, It involves lots of infrastructure. It will create growth in the Asian uh, sphere over the next probably 30 years. 
Uh, it's already underway. Spending is already going on. For example, the China uh, Pakistan Economic Corridor is a very good example. Uh, some of the roads they're building in Kazakhstan, some of the pipelines that are underway. I and mean, this is a serious enterprise. Sounds like it. And, and, and seniorage, the idea that you can be able to have access to and, and buy, uh, purchase resources with your own currency. I mean, it all ties back to, to, to that uh, first point that we, make, uh, we made, which is the internationalization of the renminbi and de-dollarization. Yeah, this is this is a big deal, and and you know we, we don't have time to go through uh, all the opportunities in each of the sixty five countries along the way, um, but there are some there are some obvious standouts. Uh, you know, Mongolia, for example, uh, that could well be a beneficiary of, of the ban on North Korean coal imports. But guess what? Mongolia has a massively deficient infrastructure. Well, in can step the Chinese and help them with that. Um, but one place, uh, as Michael mentioned, that there's been uh, some, if you pardon the pun, concrete steps taken is Pakistan. And uh, last year I spoke with um, one of the brightest young hedge fund managers uh, anywhere in the world. It's a young man called Adam Rodman out of Dallas, Texas. Um, he's a brilliant investor and he's been following the story very closely. So let's uh, listen in to what Adam had to say. The question is kind of like, how, how do you find investments like this? What brings you to Pakistan of all places? And we have a general theme uh, and somewhat of a general rule of thumb in-house, which is to, to try and follow the China money. Well, the China money is going in 65 different directions. <laughs> uh, but let's zero back in on Pakistan. Uh, and so the most important collaboration and really the driver of this investment theme is the China-Pakistan Economic Corridor, or CPEC as it's called. Um, recently, the two governments struck a, de- a $46 billion dollar uh, infrastructure deal, which on its own sounds like a very large number, but when put in context is, is really you know, quite extraordinary. Uh, $46 billion is, is about 20% of Pakistan GDP. Uh, and to put it another way, it is more than three times uh, the FDI that has poured into Pakistan since 2008. So more than three times seven years worth of FDI. This is an immense, immense amount of money. Yeah, that just blows the mind. Uh, Three times cumulative FDI since 2008 and 20% of GDP. Uh, I I mean, I've I've been looking around to see some other countries and and what they're slated to get in terms of investments from China and, you know, through this One Belt, One Road project. And it's equally mind-boggling. Laos is is slated to receive $7 billion for a high-speed railway. That is more than 50% of its annual GDP. That's crazy. (laughs) Yeah, Look, if you take a look at a map, um, and anyone listening can just Google um, the, the, the One Belt, One Road project, take a look at the map, and you will see that this project weaves its way through some incredibly strategically important countries. Um, you know, and Laos is one of those, um, as is Myanmar, uh, as is Pakistan. And um, and the Chinese understand this. The, the, the Silk Road, in its first iteration, was incredibly um, transformational for the entire world. And they're trying to do that again uh, with modern technology. And uh, I don't know, the fact that so few people know about it tells me that they're going to get a long way into this before the penny drops to some people. So hopefully by listening to this today, um, the penny's going to drop a little bit sooner. Well, and just as you mentioned with Mongolia, uh, Pakistan also has major infrastructure imbalances and needs. And that includes new roads, bridges, railways, ports. And as we look over the various industries in in Pakistan and the region as a whole, what stands out like a sore thumb, uh, really incredibly, is the amount of cement consumption 
uh, on a per capita basis, on a GDP basis, for Pakistan versus virtually the entire world. Uh, I believe, at least relative to regional and emerging market peers, the only uh, per capita consumption of cement that's lower than Pakistan is Bangladesh. So Grant, you kind of gave it away earlier, but I can already hear the gears turning in our listeners' heads. Yeah, this is this is this is big. I mean, but you, you know, the interesting thing is, it, it's when you go to places like Pakistan and you look, um, there aren't so many other people looking, and so opportunities that are very straightforward, like you know, concrete consumption in the middle of a four trillion dollar infrastructure project, um, is a very simple trade idea. But it's not being looked at, and and you know guys like Adam that are willing to do the legwork and go and look at these places often turn up some fascinating uh, some fascinating investment ideas as he uh, as he went on to explain. It's not too difficult. Uh, it's actually for an emerging or frontier market, it's quite easy to set up a local account, uh, or you can you can do it on a total return swap basis. Uh, for those people out there that um, individual investors or perhaps retail investors, uh, it's not the most liquid product ever, but just very recently uh, a Pakistan ETF was launched. I believe the ticker is PAK, uh, and it has at least a few of the names that we think uh, stand to benefit significantly from this um, you know, kind of economic inflection point as we see it, an infrastructure inflection point, and it's definitely worth a look. So- you know, just to sum this all up, I mean, there's this economic inflection point over the medium to long term, and we may have this short run uh, change in, in the currency and a short run burst in, uh, in deflation. But man, Pakistani concrete just isn't a thesis that I, I never ever thought I would think about or ever hear about. No, that, that's right. That, that's why it's always it's fun to, to get a chance to sit down and, uh, and talk to smart guys like Adam. But, you know, Pakistani concrete, that's just one. I mean, all the way along that road, when you look at the map stretching through 65 countries, there are opportunities like this which are, are going to present themselves. Uh, you know, people have to have an open mind and be willing to look at unfamiliar countries and, and you know, do some digging, do some research, understand how the markets work, how you can invest in and what you need to do. Um, but I think the rewards uh, there for the people willing to do that legwork are going to be uh, are going to be fantastic. Absolutely, there and there are tons of rewards. But I think it's it's also important we point out some of the red flags and and you mentioned some of them, Grant. Uh, you know, potential conflict escalation in the South China Sea region. Uh, depending on what on the stance that the United States takes with China, that could flare up and could divert resources away from the one one belt one road towards uh, military you know assets in that region. You can also think about political goals interfering with capital allocation and project execution in those countries. You know, what if Beijing is unhappy? You know, they're giving money to a particular country, but they're unhappy with the policies or, or even the political ruling class there. So I see that as a potential risk. No doubt. The, 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 the risks are, are myriad and there's no there's no way we can actually figure them all out. But what we do know is uh, from the dawn of time, when, when we've seen um, a global hegemon fading, and a new one looking to take his place, it has generally resulted in some kind of conflict. People understand this. Um, they're prepared for it. Uh, the worry is the penny dropping as to what the Chinese actually, or what the world looks like once the OBOR project is finished. And um, that could potentially lead to, to conflict. Uh, and people have to understand that and, and at least do the thinking about what extreme ideas like this would mean, uh, both for the world and for their portfolios. And on the way there, I don't, I don't think people should ignore the potential risks that come with the One Belt, One Road project to the Chinese banking system, because it's ultimately the Chinese banks who will be financing this, and they will be exposed to 
I guess, it's not going to be exactly 65, but a lot of these countries are subprime countries. I mean, not meant to be pejorative, but that's just that's just what they are. So there's also the risk that they don't they don't the loans don't get paid back from some of these a lot of these countries. Yeah, look, look that's that's a, a very calculated risk on the part of the Chinese. I'm sure they factored in a fairly high MPL uh, for this project. But you're right. I mean, uh, there are uh, countries which are distinctly subprime credit risks for sure. Um, yeah, beautiful countries all, but uh, but if you're going to lend money there, you need to be very careful about it. And, and look, there's one other country in the region, um, and that's Japan, which needs to be needs to be thought about. I mean, this is a, a mercantilist region. Um, all the Asian countries are essentially mercantilist in nature, and whenever you get uh, your countries of that nature flexing their muscles against each other, invariably it does lead to some bad blood and there is plenty of bad blood already between the Japanese and the Chinese. Um, We don't need any more reasons for it, but I suspect we're going to get one. So that's something else that people need to be paying attention to. We have leaders in both countries who are uh, very nationalist by nature uh, in Abe and Xi. Um, They've already had their run-ins and I suspect that we may see more of them in the near future. Well, there are tons of opportunities, risks, countries to sift through and i think uh this is going to keep us busy for a long time well let's move on to our next segment things i got wrong and grant this is a segment as you know we speak with market experts hedge fund managers and traders to ask them to share a story about a time they got something wrong and to share the investing lessons from those mistakes And this week, I had the pleasure to speak with your good friend, Dr. Ben Hunt, who's the chief investment strategist at Salient Partners and the author of the Epsilon Theory blog, which is an awesome blog that weaves together game theory and markets for a really unique perspective uh, that makes Dr. Hunt's blog a must read. So I spoke with him and here's the tape. All right. So with us this week is Dr. Ben Hunt, uh, who writes the, uh, the Epsilon Theory blog and is a man of many talents and experiences. But I'll, uh, Ben, I'll let you explain this yourself. So can you start off, just tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure, sure. I've, I've done a lot of different things. Uh, as my wife says, I, I really can't keep a job, it, it, or so it seems. I, uh, I, you know, I started in the, the, the Church of Academia. So I, I got my PhD in uh, political science of all oxymorons, and uh, spent 10 years uh, teaching, uh, doing research in political science. So um, I got tenure, did, did the whole the whole nine yards, but uh, always had the entrepreneurial bug, and uh, left academia to start a software company. Um, that company uh, sold uh, my interest in that uh, after about four or five years, what I really enjoyed about the uh, the, the software company uh, was uh, solving puzzles. First, it was solving the puzzle of writing code to, to solve a particular business problem. But what I really enjoyed about the entrepreneurial experience was the puzzle of financing the darn thing. Uh, so uh, did venture capital uh, for a couple of years. Uh, then I had the opportunity to join a public uh, equity manager uh, to figure out the puzzle of uh, public security investing. So um, we co-managed a long, short equity fund uh, for seven or eight years. And uh, that was my, my baptism by fire uh, with in the, in the public securities world, where, you know, look what we've experienced over the last 
gosh, now going on more than 10 years has really been the, I'll call it the, 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 the triumph of policy over fundamentals. And uh, so happened to be in the right place at the right time in the sense that uh, I think the perspective I bring, which is that perspective of politics, policy, uh, trying to apply the toolkit of, of, of game theory, uh, as well as the toolkit of more standard toolkit of econometrics. Uh, it's been a useful uh, kind of collection of uh, skills or, or, or at least talents uh, for, for, for investing. So uh, currently I'm the uh, chief investment strategist uh, for Salient Partners. Uh, it's about a, a $15 billion asset manager uh, based in Houston, Texas, and San Francisco, California. So that's uh, that's my story, and I'm sticking to it. Well, that's fascinating, and I imagine that confluence of unique skill sets must give you a unique um, perspective on on what's happening right now, as you as you alluded to, sort of with policy triumphing over fundamentals. I thought it was interesting you mentioned solving puzzles and, and game theory. Uh, with this segment, we're trying to ask expert thinkers. Uh, expert uh, financial thinkers, you know, what is a significant investing challenge or possibly a mistake you made in the past? So I guess uh, sticking with the game theory theme, is there, can you give us an example of a suboptimal decision you made in investing in the past? <laughs> suboptimal. I'll, I'll give you an example of where I got my teeth kicked in. That's, uh, well, that has, that's another that's way to put it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So, um, um, yeah, and, and I, and I think this was, it, it certainly changed both the way I think about investing, uh, but also my whole career. So, so I'd, I'd, I'd love to, to tell you this story. And it, it'll be a story I think that'll be familiar to uh, a lot of your listeners, uh, because the story of Europe and European markets in the summer of 2012, where I had my teeth kicked in by Mario Draghi uh, around the now, now famous or, or infamous, depending on your point of view, a statement of uh, uh, we'll do whatever it takes. The words, in other words, uh, that, 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 that backstopped uh, an enormous um, uh, reversal uh, in what looked like the, the end game uh, for sovereign debt and related securities uh, in, the, in the Eurozone in the summer of 2012. But what happened was that first at the, the end of, of, of July, or no, the end of June, when, the, when that was when uh, Draghi made his famous speech, whatever it takes, then I thought, I got it. Okay, now I see, I see now. So, so now markets are, are reacting better because they're saying Draghi's going to come up with this real plan. He's going to, to actually uh, come up with a program that will, in a sense, backstop the Italian state. Uh, you know, provide liquidity uh, for 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 the uh, for the Italian government. I thought, okay, I, I get that. That's that's why markets are responding positively to these words, right? Just plain words. But what really kicked me in the teeth uh, was the ECB press conference a month later, where with much ballyhoo and fanfare, uh, Draghi was going to announce the OMT program, the Outright Monetary Transaction Program where it would be the ECB coming in to ride to the rescue to uh, provide the mechanism for doing whatever it takes. And in this case, doing whatever it takes is going to be actually buying the sovereign debt, monetizing the debt. So I said, all right, well, let's, let's, let's hear and put that into action. 
right? So, so that was a you know significant short position going into that. And I'll never forget this. So it was the press conference today where he's supposed to announce that that OMT program. He gets out there. He says what the OMT is going to do, and markets throw up because it was just pure words. There was nothing behind it. There was there was nothing programmatic behind it. And so that was a day. I think the uh, the Italian uh, MIB was down five percent that day. CDS uh, spreads went crazy. There was uh, the the headline on the the online FT was uh, uh, Draghi's blunder, right? Draghi's blunder. But here's what happened. Here's what happened, and this is what put me on the frame of looking at the game theory here and really sparked the entire Epsilon theory effort, which you alluded to in your, your, your kind introduction, trying to think about the way in which narratives and words percolate through and change investor behavior. Here's what happened. By, the, by that afternoon, by the time the European market closed, that headline in the FT had been changed. That, F, that FT headline now read, Draghi's Bold Move. So what you had in, uh, I'll call it informational theory terms, is, is you had the narrative switch in terms of financial media, and then you had that, think of it like knocking a snowball off the hill, in terms of the market data, because the way that the common knowledge game works, we're looking around, we don't have anything to plant our feet on, so we're looking for the world to tell us what's happening. And in this case, the world in the form of financial media was saying this is a bold move. And then you saw market data in the form of this initial plunge protection team action saying, oh, people are buying. And that's what changed the entire trajectory of the euro, the European market system, everything. That 24 hours where the narrative was turned on its head from Draghi's blunder to Draghi's bold move. And the experience for me and the, 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 what I learned from that was that this is what I need to be paying attention to. And it's only by tracking that, I think, that we can navigate the path successfully in these policy-driven markets. Yeah, Ben, I think you touch on so many crucial aspects and, and, um, and frameworks there, I think, uh, especially in this sort of in this era where narrative trumps the fundamentals. I mean, you're talking about the narrative switch, the snowball effect, and, and the common knowledge game. So I know you write uh, the Epsilon Theory blog. So can you tell our listeners where they can go for some uncommon knowledge? <laughs> uncommon knowledge. I like it. So look, it's, it's EpsilonTheory.com. Uh, the name, of course, comes from modern portfolio theory, which is alpha plus beta plus epsilon. Epsilon in econometrics is, is thought that's the it's E for error. But in fact, epsilon error, well, it's not error, right? That's where behavioral economics sits. That's where game theory exists. It doesn't exist in alpha. It doesn't exist in beta. Those are, I'll call it more fundamentally derived. But where you look for what's going on terms in terms of the systematic behavior of investors, you got to look at Epsilon. I write about it in Epsilon Theory, and that's where any of the listeners can uh, find what I've been up to for the last five years. Awesome, Ben. So it's not Epsilon is not just a, 
uh, a mathematical catch-all. There's actually intricate uh, interactions and decisions being made between participants. So uh, well, it's, uh, it's excellent. I hope I encourage our listeners to check out that blog. So, uh, Dr. Hunt, thanks for joining us today. My pleasure. Now, I, I, I struggle to find the words to recommend Ben's work highly enough. He's a phenomenal intellect. He's a fantastic communicator. And, uh, and what's more, Epsilon Theory is free. So everybody listening to this should sign up immediately. Um, EpsilonTheory.com uh, is the site of Ben's blog. And you can follow him on Twitter, at Epsilon Theory. Um, and believe me, uh, if, you're, if you're one of the Twitterati, uh, you will thank me for the time I gave you Ben's handle. So, so follow Ben. He really is a, a tremendous guy uh, and a fantastic mind. Yeah, Grant, I completely agree with you. And I've been following Ben for some for some time now and reading his Epsilon Theory blog. It's just a tremendous resource. And to, and it gives you a different view on the markets. I mean, everyone, I, I love looking at charts as much as the next person. But to give you sort of a, a game theoretic understanding uh, or at least perspective on, on viewing the markets, I think is tremendously valuable. And I, I also highly recommend uh, you know people check out Ben's work at Epsilon Theory as well as to follow him on Twitter. Before we cap things off, I just got the tap on the shoulder from my lawyer to say the following. Anything you've heard in this episode should not be considered as trading advice. These are our opinions and the opinions of our contributors. So be smart, do your fundamental research, chart your technicals, and trade responsibly. All right. Well, look, that's, um, that's everything we've got time for this week. Uh, it's been a lot of fun, Aaron. Um, next week, uh, we'll be back. And Ral and I will be looking at uh, a past interview that we did back last year, which uh, which which opened both of our eyes and broadened both our horizons. That's right. And we'll be featuring James Crawford, who's the founder and CEO of Orbital Insight, a geospatial big data company. I'm still trying to figure out what that even means. Uh, (laughs) That leverages satellite UAV, which is an unmanned aerial vehicle, and other data sources to understand and identify trends across numerous scales. This is an interview that you don't want to miss. Whenever the weather is bad in the Northeast... People always get, you know, pundits always get on CNBC and say, oh, we feel bills are down in the Northeast, but that's okay. It's just because it's a really bad winter. And other people say, oh, come on, you're just making excuses, right? But we've actually now have the data since we, we have, um, we're tracking 50 retailers, 50,000 U.S. retail stores. We can break it out and break out the Northeast versus the rest of the country. Fascinating technology and a really interesting conversation that, that opened both of our eyes to, uh, to a whole world that we, we knew very little about. So, so look forward to that. So if you got an interesting question about this week's show, we'd love to hear from you. So send us an email or a voice note at podcast at realvisiontv.com. And if you enjoyed what you heard, then uh, please subscribe to us on iTunes. And uh, if you could take the time to leave a review, that would be awesome. Yep. And to keep up to date with the latest interviews, research publications, and podcast episodes, follow us on Twitter at Real Vision. And you'll also find us on Facebook and LinkedIn if you search for Real Vision. You can follow me at Macrodidact. Uh, And if you look for me on Twitter, you'll find me at TTMYGH. That's it from us. We will see you here next week. See you then. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.